0: This is a Story Hunter Productions podcast. This episode deals with graphic content and may not be suitable for all listeners.
1: On July 30th, 1949, 24-year-old Alfred Lang was shot to death in front of his wife and daughter in Toronto's East End. The World War II veteran was killed while trying to stop a man who had just robbed a grocery store. Then, three days later, the bodies of a young couple, Robert and Gloria McKay, were discovered. They too had been shot to death in what appeared to be a senseless crime of opportunity. The triple homicide shocked the Canadian city And initiated one of the largest manhunts in its history. After an exhaustive investigation and a dogged search for clues, the Toronto Police were finally able to narrow their suspect list to one a petty criminal named Stanley Bukowski. But the only problem was that Stanley Bukowski had disappeared along with his wife. Almost a year had passed since the deadly holiday weekend in Toronto, and the police had no idea where their suspect was. They had chased him down to New Orleans, but once again, he had eluded capture. Then, the trail went cold. A North American-wide warrant was issued for his arrest, and his fingerprints were sent to the FBI. Now, all that the Toronto police could do was wait for Stanley Bukowski to surface again. He was a desperate man on the run, so it was only a matter of time. I'm Catherine Fogarty, and in this podcast, I'm bringing you a true crime story that takes us from a grocery store holdup in Toronto's East End to California's gas chamber. This is Murderer on the Run, the execution of Stanley Bukowski Episode 2 Cat Burglar it was Stanley Bukowski. Stanley Bukowski. On the evening of February 1st, 1950 78-year-old widow Helen Edmonds Was awakened by the sound Of breaking glass Helen, who was a widow, lived alone at 252 South Benton Way in the Westlake area of Los Angeles. It was lonely in the big house now that her husband was gone, but she had lived there for over 30 years, and she knew everyone on the street. On that same evening, Mrs. Edmund's neighbor, Frances Preston, heard dogs barking and then what she thought was a woman's scream. Looking out her front window, she didn't see anything unusual and saw that Mrs. Edmonds' blinds were drawn as they were every night. But the following day, Frances Preston noticed that Mrs. Edmonds' blinds were still down and realized she hadn't seen her elderly neighbor all day. She called another neighbor and the two women decided to check on Mrs. Edmonds using a spare key. Calling out to Mrs. Edmonds when they entered her home, they got no response. But when they walked into her bedroom, they found her. She was sprawled across her bed in her nightgown. She could have just been sleeping, except for the large pool of blood in the center of her chest. Mrs. Edmonds
0: In the years since the turn of the century, Los Angeles has grown from a sleepy pueblo to a vast, seething, metropolitan city. Fine buildings, huge stores, busy citizens. A city which has grown faster than any other in America in the past decade, and which sees a constant day-to-day influx of people from every part of the world.
1: By 1950, the city of Los Angeles had become the fourth largest city in America, with a population of close to two million people. With its flourishing economy and welcoming climate, many families moved to the city after the war. Others came to seek their fame and fortune in Hollywood, hoping to become the next Cary Grant or Catherine Hepburn. But. With big city growth came big city crime, and Los Angeles became a haven for mobsters and gangs. And while the L.A. Police Department was used to dealing with turf wars and the criminal underbelly of the city, the murder of an elderly lady in her home had them concerned that there was a violent predator on the loose, preying on the city's most vulnerable. When the LAPD arrived at Mrs. Edmonds' home, they quickly determined that the elderly lady had likely surprised a burglar during an attempted robbery. The glass on the back door had been smashed in, and the telephone wires to the house had been cut. There didn't appear to be anything taken from the home, but the murderer had left one critical clue behind. A partial palm print on a piece of broken glass The police needed to find out who that handprint belonged to before he struck again. But print analysis and comparisons were all done manually back then. There was no central database, so it was going to take some time. By the spring of 1950, the Los Angeles police knew they were looking for a dangerous and agile thief several other homes and apartments in the vicinity of Mrs. Edmonds' residence had been broken into, and a local pharmacy had been robbed. The L.A. press got wind of the crimes and dubbed the unknown assailant the Los Angeles cat burglar. Then, on May 21st, three months after the Edmonds' murder, the Los Angeles police received a call about an attempted break-in At another drugstore on Pico Boulevard. The thief had been caught in the act when he fell through a skylight on the top of the building. When the police arrived, they found a young, slightly built man writhing in pain. He had broken his arm during the fall. The suspect was taken to the prison ward at the Los Angeles General Hospital. When questioned, he said his name was Frank Thomas Miller but he wouldn't say where he was from. The police had no record of him. His prints weren't on file, and he had no prior arrests. Still, they had a hunch he was the thief and robber they had been looking for. Was this the Los Angeles cat burglar? And was he responsible for the murder of Mrs. Edmonds? Detectives working the case soon discovered that Frank Miller was living with his wife in a small apartment on Hope Street, not far from where the elderly Mrs. Edmonds had been murdered. Searching his apartment, they found 11 guns and boxes of ammunition manufactured in Canada. This was an interesting discovery, as an autopsy had determined that Mrs. Edmonds had been shot with a thirty eight caliber gun and the recovered bullet was from the same Canadian manufacturer. The Los Angeles police contacted the FBI, who in turn reached out to the Canadian police. Maybe they would be able to provide some more information about this mystery man. They also wanted to compare his palm print with the one found on the broken glass at the Edmonds' home. But while the police continued to investigate, Frank Miller decided he wasn't going to stick around and wait for them to figure out who he really was. A few days after his arrest, Miller escaped from the prison ward at the Los Angeles General Hospital where he had been recovering from his fall during an attempted robbery. The industrious thief fashioned rope out of bed sheets and used it to climb down the building from a 13th floor window with one arm still in a cast. He then jumped 30 feet to the ground before disappearing into the night. News of his daring escape made headlines across the city. The police had lost their suspect And were embarrassed. But L.A.'s cat burglar was now a famous fugitive. And his young wife was also making headlines of her own. 23-year-old Jean Miller had been arrested when she tried to cash a $100 stolen traveler's check. And she would be spending the next four months in the county jail on forgery charges. She still wouldn't answer any questions about her husband or his possible whereabouts. But the police had a hunch their fugitive, Frank Miller, wasn't going to go far without his pretty partner in crime. On August 2nd, the Los Angeles police received a frantic call. A local resident was calling to report that a man had just broken into his home and had held his 16-year-old daughter at gunpoint while demanding money. The man had robbed them of cash and coins from their safe before stealing their car. Police dispatch immediately issued an all-points bulletin to be on the lookout for the stolen car. Within minutes of the radio call going out, two police officers spotted the car driving erratically through the streets of Hollywood. And ironically, what ensued was like something straight out of a Hollywood film. The suspect raced down Sunset Boulevard with the police in hot pursuit. The cops fired at him, smashing the front windshield. The fugitive lost control of the stolen car and crashed into a telephone pole and fire hydrant. With water gushing onto the street, the bleeding man ran from the wrecked car, firing his gun at the police. At the same time, another police car racing to the location failed to stop at an intersection and crashed into another car. Then, a motorcycle cop racing to the scene wiped out when he swerved to avoid the water spewing from the fire hydrant. A police officer who lived close by heard the sirens, grabbed his gun and ran out of the house. Spotting the suspect, he gave chase down the alleyway and over a fence, but he was no match for the fleeing bandit because the police officer had forgotten to put his shoes on. The brazen suspect fired at the barefoot officer and then disappeared into Barnsdale Park. Barnsdale Park was a popular Hollywood recreational area. Famous for Hollyhock House, and other buildings designed by Frank Lloyd Wright in the 1920s, it was a local tourist attraction. And on that hot summer day, it was teeming with picnicking families and visitors who were blissfully unaware that a gun-wielding fugitive was now hiding amongst them. The police quickly surrounded the park looking for the armed man. He was scared and injured. He couldn't get far. But by nightfall... They still hadn't found him. Then, two sharp-eyed police officers saw a glint of moonlight shining off something in the underbrush. It was the barrel of a gun. The officers yelled at him to come out and surrender, but they were quickly met with gunfire. They shot back and hit their target. The shooter in the bushes finally surrendered. He had been shot multiple times, And he had emptied the barrels of all five guns he had in his possession. The fugitive who had sent the police on a wild car chase down Sunset Boulevard and had eluded capture for days was finally back in custody. And it was none other than Frank T. Miller, the Los Angeles cat burglar. But would he live to face justice? Miller had sustained three gunshot wounds, including one to the neck. He was rushed back to the prison ward at the Los Angeles County Hospital. But this time, the police would keep a 24-hour guard on him to make sure he didn't escape again. With Miller back in custody at the prison hospital, the L.A. police had finally received details back about the 38 caliber bullet that had killed Mrs. Helen Edmonds. It was indeed manufactured in Canada, and it was also the same type of bullet used in three unsolved homicides in Toronto. Fingerprints and photos of the suspect in the Canadian murders had already been sent to the FBI, so it didn't take long for the Los Angeles police to to determine the true identity of the man they had in custody, Frank T. Miller, aka the Los Angeles cat burglar, was actually a man named Stanley Bukowski, and he was wanted in Canada. One of Toronto's biggest manhunts was over. Bukowski had finally been caught, and the Canadian police wanted to speak with him about the murders of Alfred Lang and Robert and Gloria McKay. Two weeks after Bukowski had been recaptured, Toronto Police Inspector John Nemo travelled to Los Angeles to interview him. Initially, the stubborn prisoner refused to say anything, but eventually admitted to his true name. But when questioned about the Toronto homicides, Stanley Bukowski denied any involvement. With the Los Angeles cat burglar's identity finally revealed, LA authorities and their Toronto counterparts decided on a plan. They agreed that Stanley Bukowski would stand trial for multiple burglaries in Los Angeles and would then be extradited back to Canada. While the Toronto police still did not have enough evidence to charge him with the McKay murders, he would be put on trial for the shooting death of Alfred Lang but new evidence was about to put an abrupt halt to Stanley Bukowski's travel plans. Six months after Mrs. Helen Edmonds had been shot to death in her home during a failed robbery, the L.A. police finally received the results back on the palm print they had found on a broken piece of glass at the crime scene. And the print was a perfect match to Stanley Bukowski. Armed with compelling evidence, the police questioned Mrs. Bukowski again, and she finally admitted to being with her husband on the night of the shooting. The Canadian couple were charged with murder. Hearing that Bukowski's palm print had been matched to the one at the Edmonds murder scene, the Toronto police immediately requested a copy of the print. They wanted to compare it to the one they had recovered from the stolen car in Wasaga Beach a year earlier. The prints matched, and now they were confident that they could tie Bukowski to the McKay murders. But would their triple murder suspect ever face Canadian justice?
2: This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile.
1: On November 16, 1950, Stanley Bukowski, aka Frank T. Miller, and his wife, Jean, went on trial for the murder of Mrs. Helen Edmonds. If convicted, they would face the death penalty. Prior to the murder trial, Stanley had already pleaded guilty to four burglaries committed in Los Angeles between May and July of that year. The police suspected There had been even more. For the murder trial, the couple had waived their rights to a jury, so the proceedings were held in front of Judge Charles W. Frick. In the courtroom, armed police officers kept a close watch on Stanley for fear he might try to escape again. Also sitting in the courtroom was William Gibson, the Crown Attorney from Toronto. If by chance the Bukowskis were found not guilty, he would be escorting them back to Canada. But L.A. District Attorney Arthur Vetch had strong evidence to present against the two Canadians. First, there was the physical evidence, a palm print found on the piece of broken glass at the back of Mrs. Edmund's house. Fingerprint experts had determined that the palm print was an exact match to Stanley Bukowski's left hand. Then there was the unique 38 caliber bullet that had killed Mrs. Edmonds. The bullet was manufactured in Canada. And ballistic tests later proved that it had been fired from a pistol found in Bukowski's apartment. And the only fingerprints on the gun were his. The district attorney then called policewoman Noreen Statzel to the stand. Statzel testified that when Mrs. Bukowski was arrested on suspicion of the murder of Mrs. Edmonds, she was given a lie detector test, which she failed. She then made a full confession. The soft spoken Canadian relayed how she and her husband had been walking down a darkened residential street close to where they lived. When they passed the Edmonds house, Stanley suddenly darted into the backyard. Mrs. Bukowski claimed she did not know what her husband was up to, but was aware that he was carrying a loaded 38 caliber pistol. She heard glass breaking, and then moments later, Stanley ran towards her, saying he had shot a man and they needed to get out of the area fast. The district attorney surmised that Bukowski had shot the elderly woman when she surprised him during the break-in. He then ran out of the house empty-handed. On November 28, 1950, Stanley Bukowski was found guilty of the murder of 78-year-old widow Helen Edmonds. For his crime, the judge sentenced him to death. His wife, Jean, was acquitted and promptly deported back to Canada. Bukowski was scheduled to die on November 16, 1951, but his lawyer entered an appeal for a new trial based on what he considered the circumstantial nature of some of the state's evidence. While the appeal made its way through the courts, Stanley Bukowski sat in a cell on death row in California's notorious San Quentin Penitentiary. And while most death row prisoners were happy to have their appeals drag on for years in hopes that their sentence would be commuted to life imprisonment, Bukowski wanted to die. He had no plans to be imprisoned for the rest of his life and made his feelings well known at San Quentin. He yelled at the guards, picked fights with other death row inmates, and even knocked another prisoner's teeth out. And as a condemned man, he could refuse visitors. So when the FBI showed up at San Quentin to interview Bukowski, they were turned away. They had hoped to question him about a series of burglary related murders in New Orleans that had occurred at the time when he was supposedly there. But Bukowski refused to speak to them. The Toronto police were certainly hoping to be more successful when they flew to California to interview their number one suspect in the Lang and McKay murders. They knew they could never get Bukowski back to face justice in Canada. But they were optimistic they could get a confession and some kind of closure for the families of his innocent victims. They were out of luck. Stanley Bukowski had no intentions of talking to the Canadian cops either. But, much to everyone's surprise, the convicted murderer finally did agree to talk to someone a Canadian reporter. And that lucky newsman was about to get the scoop of a lifetime. Gwen Jocko Thomas was a crime reporter with the Toronto Star for more than 60 years. Starting as a copy boy in 1929, he covered every major crime story in the city. In the 1960s he moved into radio and was the famous voice reporting from police headquarters for CFRB radio.
2: This is Jocko Thomas at police headquarters.
1: In the summer of 1949, he had reported on the tragic Lang and McKay murders. It was front-page news, and everyone wanted the murderer caught. Thomas also wrote about the hunt for suspect Stanley Bukowski, but when the killer's trail grew cold, Thomas moved on to other stories. Then, in the fall of 1951, he heard that the police had finally connected Stanley Bukowski to the McKay murders, Through his palm print. He knew that the Toronto police had tried to get a full confession from Bukowski before his date with the gas chamber in California. But Toronto's finest had been turned away. Never one to shy away from a challenge and possibly a great news scoop, Thomas convinced his editor at the Toronto Star to send him to California in the hopes of getting an exclusive interview with the death row inmate. Worst-case scenario, he'd spend a few days enjoying some sunshine in the Golden State. But Thomas was thrilled when Bukowski actually agreed to see him and sit down for what turned out to be an award-winning interview for the veteran news reporter. When the convicted killer was brought into the interview room at San Quentin Prison, Thomas was surprised by how pitiful the young man looked. Baggy prison clothes hung off his skinny body and his face was covered in a horrible rash. He refused to have his picture taken, but spoke freely about his past and asked about some old friends in Toronto. He then asked the reporter if he knew shorthand, because he was ready to talk, and once he started, he wasn't going to stop. On Saturday, October 27th, 1951, the citizens of Toronto woke up to headlines in the Toronto Star newspaper that read, Condemned man in California admits to three murders in Toronto. What followed was a front-page confession by Stanley Bukowski. Firstly, he admitted to shooting Alfred Lang on Parliament Street after the grocery store robbery. Bukowski said he only shot the young husband and father because he wouldn't let go of him. He should have minded his own business, but he was a good citizen, said Bukowski. Then Bukowski said he stole a car and drove north to Wasaga Beach, where he rented a cabin. He had planned to lay low for a few days, but when he saw the police sketch of his likeness on the front page of the Globe and Mail newspaper, he panicked. The sketch was so accurate Bukowski knew he would be easily recognized. Taking off on foot, he got to the next small town and spotted a young couple resting in a car by the side of the road. He slipped into the back seat and surprised them with a gun. He then demanded a ride to Toronto. According to Bukowski, when they reached Eglinton Avenue West and Oriel Parkway in Toronto's North End... Robert McKay started driving erratically, trying to bring attention to the car. Speeding through red lights, Bukowski warned him to stop, but Robert wouldn't. So Bukowski shot him in the back of the head. Then McKay's wife started screaming, so he shot her too. Surprisingly, no one noticed the car and its occupants before Bukowski was able to jump in the front seat push Robert McKay's body aside, and get behind the wheel of the car. After he killed the couple, he said he drove around for a while before deciding where to dump the bodies. He didn't have the heart to harm the couple's dog, so he left him tied to the bumper of the car. He added that he regretted killing the McKays. After the murders, he fled first to Montreal, and then into the United States. The mystery of who killed Alfred Lang and Robert and Gloria McKay was finally over, but the why had left their loved ones devastated. Three young, promising lives had been wiped out, simply because they had been in the wrong place at the wrong time. Walking down a city street on a Saturday afternoon and resting in a car by the side of the road, waiting for holiday traffic to die down. Asked why he had finally decided to talk, Bukowski said he didn't want anyone else blame for what he had done. Crime reporter Jocko Thomas had finally gotten the confession the police couldn't get. When he returned to his newsroom in Toronto, his editor was there to shake his hand. And several months later, the story won him the first of three national newspaper awards he would receive during his legendary
2: career. 25 years at CFRB, with CFRB, but how many years at the Star? Oh, I've been uh, 57 years at the Star. And I've been on the police beat for about 55. In all those years now, I know you uh, ran into a few like Red Ryan and that, but uh, what were your outstanding stories? Oh, I guess the, my outstanding story probably was the was the Bukowski case in, in when I went down to San Quentin and uh, uh, interviewed Stan Bukowski and got a confession to three murders that uh, that were committed in this area.
1: On May 7, 1952, Stanley Bukowski's lawyer, Ralph Rubin, arrived at San Quentin Prison to visit his 27-year-old client on death row. Stanley Bukowski's scheduled execution was two days away, and Reuben was trying to save his life. The convicted murderer had only spent 16 months on death row, and there was still hope. Reuben asked Bukowski to sign a petition for a writ of habeas corpus, which, if granted, would delay or even prevent his death. But Reuben's client just glared at him and pushed the legal documents back across the metal table. He wasn't going to sign anything. Go fuck yourself, said Bukowski. Let me die in peace. Reuben could do nothing further. If he wants to die, we can't overlook his wishes, he later told the press. On May 9th, 1952, Stanley Bukowski was put to death by lethal gas in San Quentin's famous green monster. There to witness the execution was Jocko Thomas, the Toronto crime reporter that Bukowski had confessed his crimes to. Years later, Thomas described the event as sickening and admitted to having to turn his face to the wall as the dying man convulsed and foamed at the mouth for 13 minutes before his heart eventually stopped. Stanley Bukowski was the only Canadian ever executed in the state of California. The last execution in California was in 2006. And in 2019, Governor Gary Newsom announced a moratorium on capital punishment, providing a temporary reprieve for 737 inmates on death row. Stanley Bukowski's cremated remains are buried in the Ocean View Burial Park in Burnaby, British Columbia. The grave marker reads, Frank Thomas Miller.
0: Visit us at storyhunterpodcast.com and sign up for our newsletter to get more information and updates about new podcasts. And please check us out on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter.